Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try and sometimes fail to watch everything in the streaming universe so that you, dear listener, don't have to. We're going to pick the cream of the crop for you. I am your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by my uh, fellow farmer in these streaming fields, Diane Nora. How are you doing, Diane? I'm doing great, Chris. So happy to be here. I am so happy to be here, too, and we have a lot to get to this episode, so, so much. I wish we could rehearse this episode, like, 10 or 15 times, just so we could get the timing right, you know, account mm-hmm. for any unexpected interruptions or digressions, just plan for those, uh, you know, a- any potential variables, right? That'd be great. But could we control for everything that could happen in, you know, this wild life? You know, that's a great question, and it so happens it's the subject of the TV show The Rehearsal, which just premiered on HBO and HBO Max. We're going to be reviewing that later this episode. I think that's a wild coincidence that you asked that question today of all days. Isn't it? It Or. (laughs) Or. Or. Don't give it away. We have definitely not rehearsed this episode 10 hours straight until now. We are bright and fresh and ready to go. And later in this episode, at the very end, we're going to do another Rewind review and talk about our feelings about the complete season one of Ms. Marvel on Disney+. Plus. But that is coming later. First, we have to get to some follow-up. And I have some uh, pretty exciting follow-up. Some follow-up that's very timely because we just talked about this show... And honestly, I always want an excuse to just play the Only Murders in the Building theme song. It's lovely, it makes me feel good, and it makes me feel good to say it's been renewed for season three on Hulu. Congrats, Only Murders. Congrats, Only Murders, and sorry to the residents of the Arconia, because it seems like another one of you might die. Yeah, I gotta be honest, not great news for you. I keep thinking, if I lived there, how many deaths would it take before I would want to move? Because if you have not dealt with finding a good apartment in New York City, I'm gonna just tell you right now, one murder, not enough to get me to move. Two murders, still not enough to get me to move. But three, I might start to consider it. Is it rent controlled? That's the question. There are a lot of variables. We'll get to that some other time when we review season three of Only Murders in the Building. Uh, But that's not the only renewal news we have to get to. Our other renewal news is that The Bear, also on Hulu, also recently reviewed on this podcast, has also been renewed uh, for season two. Great news for beef lovers everywhere. Ah, the lovers of the beef and of fake Chicago. Uh, But I will say, I have had a lot of people in my life mention the bear since we reviewed it. Uh, Some of them Mm -hmm. did listen to our episode, but uh, many did not yet, and yet they will. Uh, But it seems like there's something in the water. People are excited about the bear, and I do think it was smart for Hulu and FX to binge drop it, because everyone I know who has watched it binged it within a very short period of time. I'm going to be honest, I actually have not finished the season yet. I'm very close, but I have been busy, and uh, lo and behold, my own parents binged the entire season before I could finish it. I did binge the whole thing, and I'm not ashamed to say so. But I must say, you know, uh, review aside, we will do a rewind review of this soon. But um, that... It's just so easy to watch. It really is. It really, really is. I will be done with it soon. Uh, But we have to keep moving on because we want to be done with follow-up soon and move on to even more news. But I do have uh, what I think is a very big piece of follow-up because we have teased this many times uh, since we began this podcast. You might know, listener, that the most watched show on all of streaming 
is Criminal Minds. Reruns of Criminal Minds. You might not know that Criminal Minds ended, but Criminal Minds did end a few years ago. So it is just reruns of Criminal Minds, and they have been on Netflix for the last few years, and it has been the most streamed show on Netflix. More than Squid Game, more than Stranger Things, Criminal Minds is the most streamed show. And it's a little ironic, because it's a Paramount show, a CBS show, that uh, CBS Mm -hmm. and uh, Paramount just gleefully rented out to Netflix years and years and years ago with no thought to the fact that it might turn into a streaming juggernaut. And so once it became a hit, everyone knew, well, when those rights expire, Paramount is going to take the show back, which they did on July 1st of this year. But that's not the only news about Criminal Minds. No, no. The other news Mm -hmm. is that the long-rumored Criminal Minds reboot is real, has a green light, is a go for 10 episodes at Paramount+. Plus. Uh, Deadline had the details. They broke the story. And the big detail that I, I found interesting is what this was waiting on. It was waiting on the showrunner, longtime executive producer and showrunner Erica Messer. And the cast was all in as long as she was in. And I, I, I find that kind of, I don't know, for like a procedural show, too, where it's not groundbreaking art necessarily, but it's a good job or a good gig. You want to like the people you work with or have faith in the team. And I thought that was just interesting that the sticking point turned out is like, we want to make sure we know who's captain of the ship. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something to be said for, too, that not all procedurals are the same. You know, Um, the reason that Criminal Minds is so watchable, so bingeable is because there was a certain quality to the writing. And I understand why the actors are like, if I'm coming back for this, I want it to be someone I like working with and also someone who's going to give a quality product even if it is, you know, Criminal Minds, a formulaic procedural. Well, speaking of formulaic procedural, we know what the logline of the season is, and it is wonderfully formulaic and procedural, yet, like so many things of our time. Uh, I'm going to read it to you straight from Deadline. In the Revival series, FBI's elite team of criminal profilers come up against their greatest threat yet, an unsub who has used the pandemic to build a network of other serial killers. Now, as the world opens back up, the network goes operational, and the team must hunt them down one murder at a time. I'm really going to watch that. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, how do we bring it back? The show about serial killers? What if it's about a serial killer rat king who has created a nest of serial killers around him? Yes. Yes. I admire the serial killers organization. Yeah, that must take a lot of project management skills. Really impressive. I wonder if he uses mm-hmm. like Monday.com or one of those, you know? <laughs> Asana. Asana. Yeah, most likely. He is a serial killer. And you know, what better time to talk about some new news, because we do have plenty of new news to talk about. And Criminal Minds happens to be my gateway this week to the Netflocalypse. A serial killer is out to kill all the good news about Netflix. Uh, Because in addition to Netflix losing Criminal Minds on July 1st, Netflix is the subject of yet another hype-filled piece in the media, this week from Variety. This one has the headline, Why Netflix's Loss of Licensed Titles Could Spark a Content Crisis. 
Uh, and it, it, uh, the look on your face, Diane, shock, horror. It covers things that we all know if we listen to this podcast and talk about these things a lot. But there, there were some details in here that I thought were really interesting. And so they open up the story by saying they just lost Criminal Minds, their number one show, the number one show on streaming. It's now finally on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, but that is not the... You know, you might think, like, well, that's one big title. What's going on Mm. overall? What's the overall trend? And so finally, they did some great research at Variety and brought us some numbers. And so I'm going to read these straight from Variety. Between the end of 2017 and June 2022, Netflix's library of original shows and movies swelled from less than 300 to more than 2,100. So that is, the originals went from less than 300 to more than 2,100. Big, big increase in originals. Meanwhile... In the same amount of time, uh, the number of shows and licensed titles streaming on Netflix shrank from more than 5,000 to about 3,700, a reduction of almost 30%, even as the overall catalog grew by 10%. So the ratio of originals to licensed content is dramatically shifting, which is you'd know intuitively if you open and browse Netflix. But to see the actual math, to see somebody actually put the numbers to it and say, yeah, and it seems to be increasing. I think that this seems like a smart move on uh, Hastings and Sarandos' part or whoever is making this decision at Netflix because they see that the people who own this content are going to notice how well it's doing and want it back, right? And so when these contracts expire and they need to renegotiate, it may no longer be an option for Netflix Netflix to keep these titles or to keep them in a way that's still profitable. Like these deals are just going to get more and more expensive for them. So what they're trying to do, it seems like, is make their own franchises their that they already have all of the rights to. So I think that they saw what was happening. And as much as this is about the flocalypse part of it, it seems like they're looking ahead in a smart way. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I think, yes, the people who run Netflix, they are smart business people, and they have seen this coming for a while. I think the bigger story going on right now is that they haven't been as successful as I think they thought they would be by now in establishing major franchises and tent poles that they could spin off easily. Because say what you will about the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which we will later, uh, but it is very easy for them to continue to spin off more content from the MCU even with Mm -hmm. unknown actors and unknown characters because we all believe, so to speak, in the quality we're going to get from this franchise. And Netflix has tried. And their their closest thing so far is probably Stranger Things right now. Yeah, it it has not been easy for them to establish a franchise vehicle. And uh, that that has been a bigger challenge than I think anyone would have expected. Although I will say as, um, you know, people who like to think we're good at understanding how hard it is to make good TV, it's not easy. And I imagine a lot of them Mm. thought that the data would get them uh, hits faster. Uh, than it did. But the data is also interesting still. I do not discount the data. And the same Variety article uh, just had a great uh, roundup of the top 10 streaming titles of 2021. This is obviously information that's been known for a while. But I just want to highlight, in this top 10, it's Criminal Minds, Coco Chameleon, because there's got to be something for the kids in there, Grey's Anatomy, NCIS, Heartland, Manifest, Supernatural, Lucifer, Schitt's Creek, Squid Game. Squid Game is number 10 of 10. I just want to start there. Mm -hmm. And almost everything in that list is a network procedural. Network. 
So the, the battle is uphill. These are in, entrenched titles. And I, I would also just point out a lot of these titles, NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, Lucifer, they've had dozens and dozens of episodes at this point. They've had many seasons, and they're not streamer originals. One of the problems, I think, with Netflix's uh, original strategy that, that is true of a lot of streamers is a streaming season is like six to ten episodes. But right. in order to have a solid back catalog of things that people like to put on when they're doing the dishes or folding the laundry, you need over 100 episodes. The old syndication rule of you're not good for syndication until you have 100 episodes we can put in reruns. Honestly, that is still true just in a new context. Networks also spend a lot of money to market their shows, and Netflix has been inconsistent in their levels of marketing for different shows, uh, including their originals. And those shows all had multiple seasons, and Netflix is notorious for canceling things very early on before they really found their footing. So while I was just giving them props... <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps there's something to see here about, you know, give people a bigger order for these seasons and, you know, let something run three or four years and see if it can pick up that audience. Yeah. Or then retain the audience later. And maybe that's harder to quantify, harder to track, but I would encourage them to figure it out. Uh, that's not the only Netflix news we want to touch on quickly this week. We also want to touch on, uh, mm, this just is relevant because it involves Tadum. And Tadum is, of course, the sound Netflix makes. It was also the name of that blog that they started and then immediately stopped, or sort of stopped, but fired everybody from. It's also the name of a live event they put on, and the news this week is Netflix is bringing back the Tadum dumb event in September, which is just super cringy to me because, I don't know, the event is just marketing. It does mm -hmm. not, um, it's not like, oh, every network does this. It's just like a kind of pop-up marketing event for Netflix. And I cannot help but think, if you were somebody hired to write for to dumb the blogs, you know, eight months ago and fired four months ago, you wonder, how much are they spending on to dumb the pointless live show? Uh, you know, what's the strategy here? Once again, we come back to their marketing and I just wonder, what is the strategy here? Or is it just who won today's email chain argument? Right. I mean, I do think that there's something to the strategy of letting other bloggers do this work for them, because if they host a live event, the existing media blogs and perhaps even some streaming media podcasts will cover it for them. And so part of this does seem potentially smart to me as a way to cut up, actually to use a middleman, I should say, that instead of them spending their own money on having the best content creators out there covering their work, just have, you know, AV Club and Vox and Variety do it for them and stream again. So true. Honestly, I in the big picture, we will look back and go, why did they ever make the blog to dumb? But, you know, what's the zeitgeist this year is why did they fire everyone from to dumb? The zeitgeist next year will be wow to dumb. Why did that happen? But that is just one little dip into the, the waters of the Netflockalypse. There's so much more going on in streaming news this week, let's say. And, uh, you know, let's say this week, this month, this year, this moment in time. Is it moment in time when the demographics of who is driving new streaming subscriptions is shifting. And that's the subject of our next news story, a link from the Wall Street Journal. They got some numbers from Nielsen and put together a little trend piece. And th these numbers, to me, 
are interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Americans age 50 and up are powering streaming growth. That's the headline. And the numbers say that 50 and up, so that is uh, boomers and elder Gen Xers, accounted for 39% of streaming watch time as of May. That's up from 35% a year ago and outpaces the growth of all other demographic segments. I wonder if we'll see a reflection of this in what streamers make their new shows, if they're going to tailor things specifically for this market. Do you mean the Paramount plus Yellowstone Cinematic Universe? (laughs) Yes, I do. I do. I was also surprised, maybe not totally surprised, but a little surprised to see that the image that they accompanied this article with is from a program we've discussed several times on this podcast, The Lincoln Lawyer. And I have a confession to make, which is that I watched The Lincoln Lawyer. I devoured The Lincoln Lawyer. I've been, I binged all 10 episodes. I've been so upset all week that no one I know and talk to has watched The Lincoln Lawyer. And now I see that this is because the people watching The Lincoln Lawyer are over 50. Uh, So if that's you, dear listener, please write to us, tweet at us. I need someone to talk to about this show that I absolutely adore. And I'm so glad that it's coming back for a second season. Thanks for that. (sighs) Yeah. If you're over 50, what are you streaming? Podcast at streamageddon.com. I'm not going to ask you to tweet at us. Just email podcast at streamageddon.com. We want to know. And anyone watching The Lincoln Lawyer, reach out. Diane needs to hear from you. I, I did find, I found the framing of this piece really interesting overall, because the Wall Street Journal sometimes dips into tech advice for your dad. And mm-hmm. this was an article that in, had that in spades, but also, I again, illustrated the trend really well. And one thing that was really clear to me in the people they chose to interview, the kind of, you know, man on the street, so to speak, uh, that they talked to, nobody was talking about cord cutting Uh, and getting rid of cable as a cost-cutting measure anymore. And they highlighted, the writer highlighted, that some of these people were paying the same amount for Mm -hmm. their streaming packages, especially if they were picking up services like Hulu with Live TV or YouTube TV, in addition to individual streamers. And that the point wasn't that these people were trying to save money by cutting the cord. The point was that these people were enjoying the benefits of streaming, which sound really obvious if all you do is stream, but keep in mind the benefits of streaming are I can watch it on any of my devices anywhere, all of the time. And that is different than most people's uh, you know, experience of cable even if some cable companies and packages offer things sort of like that. None of it is as easy as well, I can download the Hulu app and watch my Hulu with live TV anywhere, anytime. I also think that as we see, if we see these streamers try and tailor things to folks who aren't digital natives, if that will mean that UX becomes more important. uh, I would never get my hopes up for that, Diane, but I love (laughs) your wishful thinking. I just want a a streaming service that I can navigate because I have much in common with the common streamer, age 50 plus. So true. You know, there was a line in this article, the writer Sarah Krauss uh, did not attribute this to like a specific stat, so I didn't include this in my my bullet points, but she pointed out that uh, according to something she saw or someone she talked to, people 50 and older are more likely to open a streaming app and browse it. 
and browse that catalog or that that algorithm that is trying to feed them what to watch next. Whereas people under 50 are less likely to engage in the browsing, and I think more likely to be frustrated by the fact that it's not simple to just find the thing I want to keep watching. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm reading into it a little bit there, but I liked what Sarah was saying in that. Yeah, it makes sense to me. If you think of something too, like Peacock introducing these new channels that are basically like watching TV, you know, again, that may be trying to appeal to an older demographic. Channel surf, which is something Mm -hmm. I do sort of sorely miss when I don't know what I want to watch. It is almost impossible to have something on in the background while I am browsing to find something else, a la channel surfing. If you don't know what you want to watch, the answer is The Lincoln Lawyer. It's on Netflix. Wow, wow, wow. You got me there. You got me there. But we need to move on to a few more quick pieces of news. Because speaking of cost-cutting and streaming and making our bundles uh, more expensive in the long run... ESPN Plus is more expensive. Uh, They just raised the price for an ESPN Plus subscription. Uh, You know, this is all in how you look at it. If I phrase it this way, it sounds bad. Uh, Disney raised the cost of ESPN Plus, an eye-watering 43%. Whoa! It does. That's a lot. Now, now let's uh, you know a quick little rewind here. Uh, according to Variety, Disney raised the cost of ESPN Plus from six ninety nine a month to nine ninety nine a month. It does sound more reasonable that way, right? Doesn't it? And don't you then go, "Wow, it was only six ninety nine a month for ESPN Plus." There is no way Disney was making a profit on that. No way. Nope. So, you know, we're moving towards reality in streaming once again. A- and you can still do a year of ESPN Plus at a discount. ninety nine ninety nine a year for a year of ESPN Plus seems reasonable if that's the kind of thing you're into. Uh, I did think uh, we have the link from Variety here. Uh, the writer for Variety, Brian Steinberg, did a great job of just doing a quick comparison for other live streaming services for sports. Because if you are like me, perhaps, you do not have a sense of, well, what do sports streaming services cost? Uh, so ESPN Plus plus $9.99 a month, uh, a rival, D-A-Z-N, I don't know, maybe you pronounce that Dazin, Dazin, uh, that, which he says relies heavily on boxing, I'll take his word for it, is uh, $20 a month. There's a new streaming service from the regional sports outlet NESN, uh, which gives you Boston Red Sox and Boston Bruins games for a sweet $29.99 a month. And many of the major and minor league services have their own streaming packages that range from $15 to $25 a month. So all of that is undercut by ESPN+. And uh, I imagine Disney is still not making a lot of money on ESPN+, Plus, but that's not the point. Well, I take your point and Brian's point in the article. I don't know that these are necessarily competitors, because I think a lot of people who are going to pay for ESPN+, Plus, if they are a diehard sports fan are going to pay for multiple services Services. if they are right. Like they may be paying for cable so they can watch their games live when they're in, you know, in region. And then when their team is away, they might be paying for another private streaming service and ESPN plus then to sort of get all the coverage that they want. So I think what this means is just that it's going to ultimately be more expensive for consumers. 
I have a feeling that is always the answer. And you know what else <laughs> probably will make things more expensive for consumers? Paying BTS uh, to be on your streaming service. Because our next streaming story from Disney and uh, Disney Plus is that BTS is coming to Disney Plus. Uh, according to an article in The Verge, they've partnered uh, for what Disney vaguely described as five major content titles coming to Disney Plus. And now we can confirm that at least three of those titles feature BTS, including a 4K concert film produced at LA in 2021, a docu-series about the band and their tour and their exciting lives as members of BTS, and a uh, show that The Verge described as a travel reality show. So Interesting. Right? Sure. That, that is probably the most interesting of the three things. Concert video, obvious. Docu-series, also obvious. Travel reality show, you've piqued my interest. For anyone who doesn't know, BTS is the K-pop sensation boy group. Should mention but that. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, oh, they've been hard to miss over the past few years uh, because they are just about everywhere. Uh, I was most surprised in reading this that this didn't already exist. Yeah, in a funny way. You're like, oh, they're only just getting around to that? Huh. Right. But, you know, uh, the other interesting connection here that uh, Verge writer Monica Chin points out is Disney has an overall goal to increase its catalog of Korean content, uh, not just for BTS fans worldwide, but for Mm -hmm. homegrown Korean audiences. And uh, they have a a goal they've publicly stated that they want to greenlight over 50 originals for the APAC region by 2023. And these would count towards that for sure. Great. I'm excited to check out some of that content. Right, and it's interesting to see what, you know, again, a lot of people in the U.S. especially have Disney Plus associated just with Disney, Marvel, Pixar. It is Mm -hmm. broader and bigger, especially overseas, but that's going to obviously affect uh, how we perceive it and enjoy it here in the U.S. Uh, But, you know, that is just a quick hit on some news. We are running a little long, so I want to touch on one more newsy topic before we get to our reviews. And this is... um, the, the Emmy nominations came out like two weeks ago by the time you listen to this, assuming you are just waiting by your podcast player for every new episode to drop. So we're not here to give you like, whoa, did you see our gut reactions? But I do think there were a couple of interesting trends to take away from the Emmy noms this year. What do you think, Diane? Yeah, I was uh, surprised by some of the nominations. And then there were lots of things where I was like, oh, right, that, that's yeah, kind of, of what we were expecting. One of the first things that Chris highlighted for us is they really like White Lotus, and I really like White Lotus. I love The White Lotus, uh, one of my favorite shows of 2021, and I'm thrilled that they brought it back and that they're kind of going for this um, uh, anthology style. So it is nominated in the limited series and anthology category, which is uh, a smaller uh, pool of shows. So the result is that The White Lotus actors just dominate those categories. It's almost comical looking at the nominations in those categories. Whereas if they were nominated for Best Comedy or Best Drama, the competition would be fierce because my big takeaway was in those main categories like best actor Mm -hmm. in a comedy best actor in a drama best comedy best drama like the directing and writing noms for those categories it is an embarrassment of riches i wouldn't even know where i would begin to rank them in some of them some of them obviously i have favorites bill Hader needs a directing emmy this year bill Hader needs a directing emmy this year but man i don't know where i'd begin to decide especially the acting categories I'd agree. It's definitely a year of stiff competition. And I do think that 
part of the issue for me would be in choosing that some of these shows are so dissimilar, even though they're in the same category. How would you compare Barry to Alvet Elementary to what we do in the shadows? You know, there and there are so many other funny shows that I was like a little surprised they didn't make the cut. Something like Righteous Gemstones, I would love to see yeah. get acknowledged somewhere like here or Reservation Dogs. But uh, it's just really hard to break out right now when there is so, so, so much content um, and to resonate with viewers. I'm wondering if part of the reason that a show like White Lotus got so much attention is just that so many of the Emmy nominators saw it. And there may be these other shows that not everyone got to. That's absolutely true. Always true with awards, uh, but especially with the Emmys, I think. Uh, mm. The other really exciting headline I took away from the Emmy nominations that is very relevant to us as fans of uh, the theme song of Only Murders in the Building is that Nathan Lane receiving a guest Emmy, a guest star Emmy nomination for Only Murders makes him the most nominated actor for guest star ever. Oh, I love that for him. I love that for him, too. And you know what? Here's the thing. Nathan Lane is such a good guy that when they asked him about it, his answer was, you know, I'm flattered. It's wonderful. But the person who really deserved a guest star nomination was the guy who plays his uh, son. He was so good. Because he is. He's He's amazing. Oh. Nathan Lane. What a guy. Listen, whether or not he wins this Emmy, he wins the award for best nominee. See what I did there? That's an award. Mm-hmm. Listen, when they get desperate for eyeballs on the uh, on the award shows, they're just going to introduce new categories like best nominee. Who just embodied being a nominee the best? Mm, best hair. Best dressed. Didn't the Oscars try this this, this year with the, like the like fan favorite awards? I don't know that that went over so well. I'm sorry. All I remember of the Oscars this year is the only thing anyone remembers of the Oscars this year. I'm talking, of course, about Jamie Lee Curtis holding a tiny puppy during the In Memoriam. (laughs) A tiny little puppy. (laughs) It's beautiful. It was beautiful. And do you know what else is possibly beautiful? This new series by Nathan Fielder on HBO and HBO Max called The Rehearsal. So the rehearsal is a new series on HBO and HBO Max as part of an overall deal with Nathan Fielder. And I feel like before we even talk about the rehearsal, we have to talk about who Nathan Fielder is, because I have tried to explain this show to people who do not know who he is, and I've quickly dig myself into a hole. Yes, that makes sense. I think it's a show that demands to be talked about, but it also seems like something that only he could make. It's one of my favorite things about the show. So Nathan Fielder fans may know from Nathan for you, which was on comedy central uh, for three seasons, four seasons, four seasons. Sorry. I, um, I know. Cause I fell into a Nathan for you rabbit hole last night and started rewatching episodes. They're not long seasons, like eight episodes a season. Mm-hmm. And I'm very enjoyable yeah. though. Sometimes wildly uncomfortable. Oh yes. And, and occasionally not just enjoyable, but brilliant in construction. Agreed. Um, I think that people may also know Nathan Fielder because he's one of the producers as part of this same deal of um, How To with John Wilson on HBO and streaming on HBO Max. Yes. Uh, which we've discussed on this show briefly before. Um, we're both big fans of How To. 
Yeah, and they live in a similar tonal universe where it's a little hard to describe the show at first. If you are familiar with How To, this shares that part of its DNA. If you're not familiar with How To, boy, we're, we're really digging the hole deep already. Uh, but I think a good example here, because he, he, you know, Nathan mentions Nathan for you in the conceit of the rehearsal. So I think it's a good touchstone for it. Uh, that show was a, a Comedy Central 23-minute Series, but it was uh, unscripted, un, uh, in air quotes sometimes, but a mostly unscripted show fo- formatted after, you know, that period of time where like uh, uh, bar rescue and like mm-hmm. kitchen rescue. Nightmares. Yeah, yeah. Kitchen nightmares. When those shows were popular, where someone, an expert, would come in and fix your small business. And so the conceit of Nathan for you is that Nathan got really good grades from a, a business school in Canada and will fix your small business with his ideas. But his ideas are always out there. And it, his affectation is so uncomfortable at times that people just go along with it, I think is the simplest way to describe it. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And sometimes to their detriment. Uh, and sometimes they have a lot of fun with it. They're always willing participants, but there's some gray area here because if they don't know who Nathan is and what they're getting into with their business, um, they might not be making the best choice to go along with his plan. Yeah, it's not always clear at what point the business realized that the show is a joke. That you know, they know it is, but they didn't always seem to know going in, and they don't all always seem to enjoy that turn when it comes. No, they certainly don't. And, and some some people may not realize until after the show airs, quite frankly, because there are also some episodes where he keeps them in the dark so long for the crazy thing he's doing that we don't really get to see them process what just happened. I'm also curious if how much Nathan cares how they feel about it. Not clear. We'll have a a link to an interview with Nathan in uh, New York Magazine as part of their TV issue that's a really great overview of his career and kind of where where the rehearsal is coming from. They don't spoil much about the show itself. It's much more of a profile. But I walked away from that profile equally as confused about how he feels about it as I was going in. But I learned a lot about his process and who he is along the way. He just remains an enigma in so many ways, and I think that's on purpose. Me too. I went into that. We've been talking about reviewing the show, so I've been thinking a lot about Nathan Fielder. I went into reading that profile, which I read before watching the rehearsal, thinking Nathan Fielder is a genius and he's saving comedy. I know that's high praise, but when I'm really into someone, I'm really into them. And I left the profile thinking like, is he a bad person and am I bad for enjoying his work? But and, and not to get all the way ahead to the end of the first episode, which is what we watched for review, but the show, the rehearsal, asks that question. That the, mm-hmm. the moment the show really clicks is at the end of that first episode when you realize he knows that you are wondering if this is exploitation and if this is a, a terrible thing and is he a bad person and maybe he is and he is thinking those exact same things. Right. The difference is that's not stopping him from making it. No. And it didn't stop me from watching it. No, it's it only not. made me more excited. Yep. So it, I just said that's the minute the show clicked for me is <laughs> when when he implicated both of us. When when he said, "Oh no, 
I know you feel weird watching this. I feel weird making it. And you know what's even weirder? The fact that we're acknowledging that makes you want to watch it even more. He's such a devilish person. Yes, uh, so I should say I, I really, really love this show. I cannot wait to watch the next me, episode. Me too. And I hope everyone else I know watches it so that we can talk about it. Because uh, I'm dying to talk about it. So the, the premise is simply here is he goes into people's lives and says, you know, what if I could help you rehearse a difficult decision or conversation over and over and over again using massive realistic sets and actors, everything recreated to a disturbingly accurate degree so that you feel confident that you are prepared for all the possible outcomes of that interaction. Ooh, and in this first episode, so rather than a business, it's usually an issue here in somebody's personal life. So in this first episode, his subject is a man named Cor Skeet. And Cor has lied to his group of friends in his trivia group about his level of education. He's told them that he has a master's degree years ago uh, when, in fact, he was graduating from a bachelor's program. Uh, and it's really been eating away at him. And there are moments on the show where you see him uh, almost break down emotionally about how stressed he's been about this lie. His friends have been sending him info on jobs that require a master's degree. And he really wants to just confess it to his friends and in particular he's concerned that one friend will be upset or perhaps react really negatively shout at him or something about the news uh, so that's what the they are rehearsing the possibilities of him meeting his friend at alligator lounge to play trivia in brooklyn and uh to confess to her that he doesn't have a master's degree and and that is the exact thing that they do they rehearse it mm -hmm. over and over and over again and the the thing you have to understand about nathan fielder that's also true on nathan for you is each time some new obstacle comes up in his process we have to go down the rabbit hole of solving it and that is where so much of the humor comes from but it's also where you get a 45 minute runtime out of the premise that, that diane just described so i think a great example from this episode is uh the friend that he's going to confess to initially core doesn't want to tell nathan Nathan the name of the friend so that Nathan goes down uh, trying to figure out which friend it is when he finds he can't so then he gets uh, a new strategy to get cores to let his guard down and open up to him which involves taking core skeet shooting because core's last name is skeet and he can't believe he's never been skeet shooting but then Nathan reveals in a voiceover that he's loaded their guns with blanks so that they'll bond over the fact that they were both very bad shots and didn't hit any skeet when they went skeet shooting. And then on the drive back, Cor finally reveals the name of the friend is Trisha. That's one way to get info out of someone. Right? In in that same sequence, he's brought him to uh, an overnight where they're um, in a heated pool discussing their lives. And um, Cor has revealed that he was divorced, that he had a marriage that lasted five years. Again, this is a real person, uh, not yes, an actor, saying this on camera. If you are not familiar with Nathan here, the, Cor is just a guy. Cor is just talking. 
Yeah. So Cor tells Nathan that and Nathan shares that he also uh, had a marriage that lasted three years and is now divorced. Um, And he wants it to seem Nathan wants it to seem like he wants to share more, but is interrupted. So uh, while this moment is happening, viewers see uh, an older man in the pool swim by them. But then through voiceover, Nathan tells us that he has hired this older man so that he doesn't actually have to share more, but so that it seems like he would have opened up more if he had the opportunity. I have just to say, incredibly manipulative. That 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 scene was amazing, and mm-hmm. I'm I wasn't sure if Nathan's telling me the truth in that moment because it's also mm-hmm. a moment where that man may have just swum by because I doubt they bought right. out that pool. I bet they just got permission to film in it or something. And then I imagine it's the kind of shoot where he says, "No, no, you don't have to close it down. If somebody walks through, that might be good." It might be. Uh, you know, and part of this is my experience with How To with John Wilson, because How To with John Wilson is all constructed, well, not all constructed out of, but a lot of it is constructed out of found footage that then is a narrative is laid on top of afterwards. And I couldn't help but have some moments in this episode where where I thought, well, you know, when he has the voiceover, he can tell us anything because he can or he can edit this together any way he wants it to. Yeah, without going into how to too much, because uh, folks who haven't seen it, I would really just, again, encourage you to check it out yourself. But there is a sweetness at the core of how to with John Wilson that I think is probably based on uh, John Wilson's personality and worldview that um, even as the show deals with issues of how we tell stories and how stories are manipulated and how narrative functions and what is real and what isn't real. The uh, show seems to rely on community and kindness and have at its core a lot of um, good wishes for the world in a way that Nathan for you and the rehearsal so far do not seem to share. Um, it gives it a dangerousness that actually makes me more compelled to watch the rehearsal than I feel compelled to watch How To with John Wilson. Yeah, I think that's a really good differentiation to draw. And it, it, it can sound judgmental to say one of them is good at heart and one of them is not. But no, it is just there is an inherent difference to what part of the human psyche these two shows are exploring. And they really are very philosophical shows about what it means to be a person in a society of other people. That is ultimately these deep, deep questions that both of them are probing just in very uncomfortable ways sometimes. And definitely unconventional in the case of both of them. In the rehearsal, the the level of detail, I cannot stress enough, that he brings. We see what the alligator lounge bar looks like from the outside and the inside. And then we see an identical building inside a soundstage. So we know it's not like he rented the bar out and is trying to fake it. He literally built... as if we are in Hollywood, a standalone business just on a set. And inside, it looks perfect, down to a balloon that's stuck in the corner, the rips on the seats. Everything looks amazing. And when when they do have things that they've completely faked, they make a joke out of it. Like when they uh, do their dress rehearsal and they have a working pizza oven, except it's just people put in the pizza dough and somebody in back dumps the pizza dough into a trash, unboxes a hot pizza they ordered, and puts it out to deliver. 
I loved that moment too, right? Because it does constantly remind you of its artifice at the same time um, that he is exploring what it means to rehearse. And so part of the reason that Core can explore everything he's going through and that Nathan can explore how people interact in this way is because there's a knowledge that everything is being faked. Yeah. Like that his friend who he's confessing to, he's confessing to an actor first for a while. So he doesn't have to actually go through that. And when Nathan is preparing to talk to Core, he's actually talking to the actor K. Todd Freeman. I was about so, to say, part of the setup of the episode is Nathan reveals to Core in their initial kind of meet and greet interview that Nathan has been rehearsing this conversation with Core in a replica of Core's apartment over and over with an actor playing Core. And they continuously show us bits of that as we go through the episode, which culminates, I think we can get to this, at the mm -hmm. end of the episode when we have the actual encounter. And so the actual night of the trivia and the, the planned confession, we have cameras set up inside the actual alligator lounge. You can tell the quality's worse, the angles are different. And we have Nathan uh, narrating over the action that we're seeing to explain because now we're, we're just watching this kind of uh, mostly silent footage except when Cor and uh, Trisha are talking. And uh, we get through the night and the trivia and there, there's drama. There are moments of will he bring it up? Will he not bring it up? Because they've established that he's going to wait to do it in between the last round of trivia and the scoring so that if it goes badly, the night is over and they can leave. I, like the level of thought and planning they've put into this, right, to make him comfortable. And so we get to the moment, and it seems like he's not going to do it, and like he's chickened out, and then he does it, and then the pizzas are ready, and it's awkward timing, and there's something very, like, human and real about there was still an unexpected little element that they didn't plan for. But the end result is that the conversation goes amazingly well. They, she's very receptive. He was worried that it would be awkward to bring up, and instead they talk about it, and they, they seem to get along really well, and he seems really happy. And at the end, Nathan finally gets to debrief with him outside. And Nathan, unbeknownst to Cor, had done one other thing to prepare him that Cor would not have approved of. And that was he fed Core the answers to the trivia in advance without telling him because Core was worried that he would be too distracted by the trivia or if he wasn't doing well at the trivia, he would lose his confidence. And so Nathan's plan was, I'll feed him the trivia answers in seemingly random conversations while we go for walks around the city. And that then, during the night of the trivia, he'll just know them because they'll be in his recent memory, and he'll do really well on the trivia. And sure enough, it gave him confidence, and they won the trivia. And so in the debrief, Nathan is with Cor and, and you know, says to him, I have to confess something. I fed you all the answers for the trivia and I didn't tell you because I knew you wouldn't approve of cheating, but I really wanted you to do well, and so I, I planned this and I, can't, I have to confess it. And it's such a delicious mirroring of Core's dilemma that there was a fundamental lie that he can't live with. And at that moment, they cut to the actor who played the fake Core in the prep, and that actor, as Core, says that this is a huge betrayal and that he's ruined everything and that Nathan is a bad, bad man. And then we cut back to Nathan, 
And instead of revealing any of this, he gives the real core a compliment, a really awkward, really Nathan Fielder compliment. And the real core really awkwardly just takes this compliment unbeknownst of any of the rest of this. And that's the episode. And we see Nathan is asking himself the same questions we are asking about him. Mm-hmm. I find that part of it to be really cleverly constructed television. Number one, I was fooled by the moment where he, where Nathan confessed. I didn't expect it to be uh, the actor returning. I expected to see Core on the other side of it. Uh, I was really in great suspense, worried about how this interaction would go between his man and his this man and his friend. Like I. Uh, cried when he confessed it to her out of relief because they make it so cringy that I really was like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? I would be heartbroken if his friends had, you know, turned their back on him after he just revealed something that no one should be ashamed of, which is their level of education. Um, But it was just really cleverly constructed. I I have to give him that. Yeah. But at the same time, the fact that it's so constructed and artificial when it is a show about what is real and what is not real is so fascinating to me and a little manipulative. Absolutely. Uh, to quote one of the vanity cards at the end of every Nathan Fielder production, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> it was it was a gut-punching moment. I... Um, I have a bad habit of sometimes checking out reviews of shows before I watch them. And one of the reviews I looked at for the rehearsal, the first sentence said, it's crazy to start the review talking about the final moment of the episode, but dot, dot, dot. And I like shut the laptop faster than I've ever shut anything. Because it was like, whatever that means, I need to experience that myself. And if, listener, we just spoiled that for you, well, you came along for the ride. And I hope it intrigues you enough to go check the episode out. Because as... Um, detailed as we're trying to be describing what this was like to watch and experience, the actual experience of watching this is something that you need to sit down and just do. And if you hate the show, fine. Podcast at streamageddon.com. Tell us all about it. But I really think this is one where give it one episode and see what this experience is. I have to say, too, I have some suspicions about the rest of the season that I'd like to share. Yeah. So I live in North Brooklyn, not so far from Alligator Lounge. And like Core, I very much enjoy trivia. Uh, I was delighted to see how much this man's trivia team meant to him. I felt seen. I had one of those moments where I was like, was this episode of television crafted specifically for me? Uh, But... I was a little surprised when I saw them do footage in the actual Alligator Lounge that that is not the host of trivia at Alligator Lounge. That is not the format of the trivia, and that is not the style of questions that you would be asked. So I happened to know the host of trivia at Alligator Lounge, and I checked his social media to see what he was saying about it, and other people had brought this up, and he himself was like, yeah, our questions are better. That wasn't us. I don't know who that was. So... I think that there is a twist. I think that there is a twist afoot and that Nathan has another something up his sleeve and that maybe this is these are actors and that this was a rehearsal. 
I I love this possibility that there is a meta rehearsal going on, on atop the show called The Rehearsal. Uh, I, 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 and, and to be fair, Devil's Advocate, it also could be something to do with uh, the, the venue, the rights, mm-hmm. the like logistics. There could be a really uh, innocuous or boring explanation for this. But the, um, Nathan Fielder is described in this episode by Core a little like Willy Wonka, which is a, a kind of piece of thematic framing they lean into and they bring in the Gene Wilder uh, Pure Imagination song over the credits at the end. And it is it is played both for the, the magical element and, you know, the people who died at the candy factory element, that there is a darkness to Willy Wonka. And so there is this magic to him where, like, could he be revealing an even more sinister, strange plot atop all of this, absolutely in his wheelhouse. Yeah, and I think that also says something about what the show is trying to do to its viewers, to make you look for things like, ooh, but is there another twist? Is someone deceiving me? Can I really trust anything? (laughs) So I might be wrong, and, and maybe there is nothing more than the rich amount of levels that are already present in the episode, but I do think that that maybe something else is happening. I'm not sure. Something else is up. And we will find out what else is up in future episodes of The Rehearsal, which has got a six-episode season on HBO and HBO Max. And I have a feeling we're going to come back and do a rewind review on this uh, later in the summer or in the fall once it wraps up, because I also am completely hooked and uh, have suspicions that there's more uh, more awaiting us than just a procedural version of what we saw this week. Because this show also is so about how people react to it, we would love to hear from you, as we've said, podcast at streamagain.com. Please tell us your takes and we will read them if if, if you don't mind us sharing. Please, if you write to us, we'd like to read it. So do. (laughs) But you know what else we'd like to do right now? We'd like to revisit a show that we uh, recently reviewed and we rather enjoyed. But did we still enjoy it? Did all the episodes meet our very high expectations? You will find out right now in a Rewind (laughs) Review. A little Marvel jazz for us as we talk about Ms. Marvel. Uh, listener, you might recall we reviewed the first few episodes of Disney Plus's original series, Ms. Marvel, earlier this summer, and they wrapped the six-episode season. So we are right here with your spoiler warning for all six episodes of Ms. Marvel season one. Uh, there you go. Diane, we were pretty hot on this when it premiered. Are you still hot on it now that we've had a chance to see the whole thing? Nah. Nope. Okay. That was your Rewind review of Ms. Marvel. It's been so nice having you all here. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're going to talk more about it. Uh, I I think we have similar critiques. I just want to remind listeners where we were when we uh, were jazzed about the show. We were a few episodes in. We were balancing um, Kamala's uh, superpowers with her teenage life, with her secret identity, with her perhaps romantic interest, perhaps it's a bigger story interest in the new boy at school, Kamran. There there was a lot of both relatable and superhero stuff going on. I think you compared it to Buffy, which I found Mm -hmm. so perfect and so delicious. And then the show instantly heard us say that and said, no, that is not the kind of show this is. Yeah, it just became another Marvel show for me. It just became another Marvel show. 
which perhaps is what it intended to do. It didn't seem like the show that it was at the end of episode six was the show that had been set up. Uh, even though they had a few moments in the finale that brought back some of that interesting family dynamic that we were enjoying and the more more of the teen drama stuff. But really in the middle episodes, um, the plot of the superhero stuff took over any other threads that we were following and it just was uh, it wasn't the and, best superhero and, and story and I get it, a superhero story like the superhero plot does take over at some point it's a superhero story but the superhero mm-hmm. plot didn't integrate very well with what we'd been mm-hmm. given in her per, in her life story she has a life story and then it it becomes a superhero story and they just didn't make smooth transitions from life to superhero to then in the final episode back to life now integrated as a superhero i mean it is the structure is the hero's journey they went on a very traditional structure of telling the story of somebody you know becoming a hero and accepting their powers and you know setting themselves up for the sequel uh but but the major turns when we went to in this case to pakistan and then when we came back to new jersey those did not land well and that section where she's in pakistan investigating her roots and learning about uh, the source of her power while interesting felt like a completely different show i agree i also think interesting that you said she went on the hero's journey because she did if and if you looked at this as six hours of television i think that you would say oh yeah it was well constructed but more so plotted like a movie and it feels like perhaps similarly to my complaints about obi-wan kenobi that this was laid out as a feature film beat by beat and then they just split it into episodes and while there might have been still some like cliffhangers that got you to tune into the next one it didn't feel serialized like a television show it did not feel like it was taking advantage of the tv format to me at all I agree. And I feel like there was some real misdirection in the first couple episodes establishing her Mm -hmm. world and her friends that made it seem like we would get more time with those side stories. And and if it was a real TV show, I was going to say more traditional. No, screw that. A real TV show. If it was a real TV show, you set up the expectation that, well, she has her friends and one of her friends has a plot about running for the board at the mosque. And we're going to get a little more time with that plot sometimes, even if it doesn't integrate directly with the main story. And instead... Mm -hmm. All of that was just kind of like to give a little like juice to their relationship so that she could feel really betrayed when she found out Kamala was the the, the nightlight, the superhero. That, but, but it honestly, like you could have gotten there without any of that side story about her running for the mosque board. And I liked that side story. But that's the kind of level of um, freedom to explore that you get on TV that you don't get in a movie on purpose because a movie has a straight plot that it follows beginning to end especially a superhero movie like this and so you could see them shift gears into movie mode very clearly in the back half of the season where it feels like to some extent these Marvel shows, they're just movies that have a little extra time to explore something and they get to go to these writers and say, isn't it fun? You get a little extra time to explore this character. Isn't that great? And as a writer, you'd be like, yeah, I love this character. I'd love some extra time to explore them. Thank you so much. But as an audience member, that is an aside. It's not really part of the experience of the show at the end because at the end, it's about She's Ms. Marvel now, and she will return in The Marvels. 
Okay. I wanted Ms. Marvel season two. I Me wanted to know about being a teenager and being a superhero and balancing those things. I wanted monsters of the week. Anyway, I liked the show that I imagined this would be. <laughs> Me <laughs> so maybe, too. Maybe it's unfair to say it wasn't the thing I wanted it to be, but I also think it wasn't the thing that they set it up to be. Um, it might also be that I'm just experiencing Marvel fatigue. We're in phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and there is more Marvel content than there have been in any of the three previous phases. And I just might be marveled out to the point where seeing something that's following a really clear formulaic plot is not that interesting. It just wasn't that captivating of a superhero story for me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It, it was a super formulaic superhero origin story in a lot of ways, with just this added uh, dimension about her family history with the India-Pakistan partition, which was the only really interesting original part about her superhero story. Everything else being like trans-dimensional beings who gave you powers, and oh, the big twist at the end that's supposed to be really important if you follow Marvel is she's a mutant. Did you catch that? That was a big deal. I did. I had, I had to yeah. have, like, I heard them say the word, and I was like, oh, yeah, mutants, yeah, okay. And then, and then, like, oh, X-Men? the internet was like, it's a huge tell. Finally, X-Men are coming to the MCU because she's a mutant. And I was like, oh, I was supposed to read that much juice into that one line? I, I just, I think that if that, either people are really hungry for some bigger Marvel story that they can't find right now, and so they're just kind of grasping at things, or the the bigger Marvel story is exhausting and confusing to a lot of us at this point. And so you say, like, did you catch that? It's like, was that the thing I was supposed to catch? I was too busy trying to understand Ms. Marvel. I like X-Men quite a lot and would enjoy seeing more content about those characters whom I love, but I don't want them in the Marvel universe because Marvel ruins things. I don't, especially right now when everything has become flattened and samey. The idea of them doing that to and, the X Men is, is not, is not exciting to, to me. Everything else, yeah. I, do, I do agree. Bloated I do agree. and 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 this is rushed. Completely anecdotal, but you have you, the exact thing you just said about Marvel fatigue. I literally listened to a, a video game podcast that I enjoy as my like weekend walk the dog, listen to people talk about something interesting, artsy, what you, dear listener, are doing right now. But for me, I listened to my video game podcast and they were doing an episode talking about TV because, you know what, everyone just wants to do a podcast about TV too. And they brought up the exact same point. And they're coming oh. from Okay. They're coming from a different perspective. That's why I thought it was interesting. Is they're not, you know, they obviously enjoy TV, and they're, uh, but they're more Marvel fans, and they're fans of video games, and and that kind of, in my mind, more drawn out entertainment. So I, they're people mm-hmm. that, to my mind, have more uh, patience for a story that maybe just sets you up for the next story, or that you have to replay in order to get all of the the value out of. And even they were saying, listen, the old Marvel phase, you knew it was all culminating in the event. Avengers, that the next Avengers movie was going to pull it all together. And then we got into like the Ultron stuff. And then we got into the Thanos stuff. And you knew that even if like that, you know, random, I, I'm going to guess um, 
Doctor Strange Part 1 movie uh, wasn't your cup of tea. It was setting you up for something that was going to happen in an Avengers. I don't even know if that fits in with the cinematic universe properly. A better example here would be if you didn't love Captain Marvel, which was not a super popular Marvel movie, you knew that you it was setting you up for something that was going to happen in the big story that you were following, which was what's happening with the Avengers and Thanos. And right now, in the post-Thanos Phase 4 of the MCU, there is no big bad you're tracking. There is no Avengers team anymore. They've broken up. You're not... There is a bigger narrative, as established by the fact that every stupid thing ends in another stupid cliffhanger for the thing you have to see next year. You don't know what that's a part of. And I thought that was a really good uh, detail to point out, that it's not just the fatigue, it's that there's a lack of coherence right now, where the previous kind of heyday of the uh, MCU, the, it was all tied together by the Avengers. And right now, it's like, there's that thing with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and she's that, like, making maybe a bad group of evil Avengers, but she's only in some of the things, and I'm not really sure. And then there was, like, Moon Knight, who seemingly has nothing to do with anybody, and then there's uh, Ms. Marvel, and she turns into Captain Marvel at the end, so that means something. And is she a mutant? They're all setting things up, but what? They're all setting up different things. So I'm so confused. I think it's just setting you up to keep watching the same stories over and over and feel like it's accomplishing something, but I don't think that it is. I think that um, if you set something up, it opens the possibility, like with what happened with the Thanos storyline, that that story will end and that people will move on to something else. And so if you just keep dangling things and misdirecting and be like, oh, we're bringing in new audience here with some info about a girl who's Muslim, but then we're going to totally drop that, basically, and uh, just make it more superhero schlock. I, you don't ever have to have anything end. You never have to have anything end in the Marvel Cinematic (laughs) Universe, but... When you're making a podcast, you do have to end the podcast at some point. So, dear listener, I'm sorry to say this does have to end, but just just for a little while, we'll be back in your feed soon. We would love to know what you think is going on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. I just want to say, if they did a season two of Ms. Marvel, I would be there in a heartbeat. But right now, it sure seems like they're not going to make that happen for me, and I guess I have to go see The Marvels in 2023 instead. I'm still going to go see the Marvels. So, you know, take all my complaints with a grain of salt. Give us both. Yeah, okay, fine. Fair, fair. (laughs) Diane, where can people find you on the internet? I am at Diane Nora, Diane with two N's on Twitter. And I am at I am Chris Barlow, just with one of each letter in the place that you'd think it would be. (laughs) And uh, as always, listener, we'd love it if you leave us a review or your feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast. And the best thing you could do, share the podcast with somebody else. We will be back in your feed in one week's time with some more juicy summer streaming and another Rewind review. Until then, keep streaming and keep rehearsing because you never know when it will be time for the big show. (laughs) 